The parish likes to, to look at kind of the bigger picture. A priest is an altar Christus. They just go, go, go. In the zeal full of Jesus Christ. There is compassion for poor people. And it has this beautiful historic church. Heaven coming down to earth. Thanks be to God. From the Rome of the West, this is the Catholic Gateway Podcast. Your audio gateway into the Archdiocese of St. Louis. On each episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast, we'll tell the stories about the interesting people, places, and events that make up the Archdiocese of St. Louis. We'll also give an update on Catholic news, courtesy of the reporters from the St. Louis Review and Catholic St. Louis Magazine, the official publications of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. So with trust in the Holy Spirit, let's begin. Welcome to another episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Jones. In the Catholic Church, the month of May is dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The month begins, though, with a feast dedicated to St. Joseph, who was, of course, the spouse of Our Lady and foster father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Appropriately, then, May is also National Foster Care Month in the United States. According to numbers from the Child Welfare Information Gateway of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, more than 427,000 children were in foster care in September of 2015. The most recent year complete data is available. That number is lower than the 510,000 in foster care in 2006, but several thousand higher than in 2014. In the Archdiocese of St. Louis, Good Shepherd Children and Family Services is the only Catholic Charities agency to train and license foster parents. Emma Vonderhaar is the Communications Coordinator for Good Shepherd. Good Shepherd, as an agency, works with three other agencies um, in the state of Missouri, uh, bringing families together, Lutheran Family Services and Our Little Haven, and we have a contract through Children's Division um, to uh, place children in homes. So... Uh, you know, when a child comes into care through the children's through children's division, um, they'll be placed in one of the through one of those agencies. And then we also have the licensing side of it, so um, we help to recruit and train foster parents to license them um, to whatever level of care um, they are comfortable with or they they are able to provide. Um, and so we have a staff that works uh, with the kids that have kids on their caseload and then a staff that works with the foster parents and, and resource parents. Good Shepherd knows that children enter foster care for many reasons, poverty, abuse, and neglect, but never because of their own choices. And Good Shepherd is always looking for families with room in their homes and their hearts to care for one or more children in foster care. Dessa and Juan are foster parents who recently did just that. They bought a house in January 2016 on a quiet street just outside the city of St. Louis. They were licensed by Good Shepherd in June in 2016 and received their first placement shortly thereafter. Here's Juan. I remember uh, in our first placement when she came over, the first thing uh, that we did, we sat on our uh, our steps in the front yard. And yeah, you know, we could see that she was, you know, kind of um, like slightly... Just a mix of different emotions, including you know being slightly frightened, uh, not uncertain, but at the same time, you know we did sense some kind of like you know um, openness from her to be with us and kind of felt a little bit of a connection. I think because of, we had met him before and the fact that 
um, you know, we speak Spanish. Um, that that um, that also helped. But yeah, I remember sitting in the porch and playing games to kind of like help um, open up and carry a conversation and talk with her. Quiet evenings on the front porch would soon be a thing of the past for Dessa and Juan, though. Three days later, a brother of their first placement was also placed with them. Two sisters moved in a week and a half later. So by mid-July, we had four kids. So we went from zero to four in two weeks. That was pretty intense. (laughs) But it was fun at the same time because these kids had been in separate foster homes before. So they were really excited to be in the same home and to to kind of have that future ahead of them that, you know, they weren't going to be separated anymore. And, you know, they hadn't consistently seen each other for the past three months since they've been in care. Since then, they have now added another sibling, so they now have five children under their roof. Dessa and Juan said one of the biggest challenges with that many kids was getting into a routine that worked for everyone. Some of the girls, I remember them mentioning that they would stay up until... Uh, you know, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, you know, watching movies or, you know, just being on on the internet. Um, And then they come into our home and, you know, there's four of them, four was to get in bed, you know, between eight and nine. And yeah, for the first few months that was out the window, there's, we'd stay up till like, you know, 11, 12 at night. And it took a while to get them into a routine and get them to the schedule that we wanted to. So that was, I think, one of the, the biggest challenges that we had early on. If you're like me, it's at this point you're probably wondering what mornings and bedtime are like. They're pretty good in the morning. Um, So at 6.10, I wake up the girls, and they are very self-sufficient. They wake up, and they get ready by themselves, and they're pretty awesome. Our 7-year-old boy, he'll put his clothes on, and then he'll come downstairs and watch TV. Um... And then our five-year-old is the one I think he likes to sleep the most. So he's the one that sometimes will have to wake up and coerce to get dressed. And he likes to have kind of that more one-on-one time in the morning. Yeah, but our typical uh, routine will either involve taking them, walking them to school or taking the bus or taking the, the car with them. So basically just a flurry of crazy activity Yeah, a couple hours until, until you get into school. Yeah, I yeah. realize there's like these two hours in the morning that are just like, you know, from six to eight. It's kind of this like pressure of like getting everybody ready, getting them out the door, getting them to school on time. And then after that, it's just calm and quiet <laughs> yeah. until we have to go to work. And yeah. it's funny. And then at bedtime, I realized too... It's like these two hours. Bedtime starts kind of at 7 o'clock, and it ends around 8.30 or 9 o'clock. But from those times, we have to get five kids in their pajamas with their teeth brushed. We read a book with each of the kids at night, and we put them each to bed separately. So we, like, will sit on their bed and we'll rub their back and play calming music to each one of them and it's just the routine that we always do but it's like this two hours of time where it's like we're just going to bed but there's just five of them so it takes longer and they like to have the one-on-one time like it's hard having five kids and giving each one of them the one-on-one time that they deserve Um, But we really try, and I think bedtime is one of those times where we're able to do that, and they really enjoy reading a book and being put to bed. That's 
yeah, it's kind of good for all of us. Yeah. Mm. Dessa also says the kids each require a little different parenting style. There's no one-size-fits-all. And she emphasized that not every traumatic event shows up in a behavior the same way in each child or at all. So they try to tailor their interactions to suit each child. Some kids just need to be held and loved on, and other kids need more of a structure, and they need a routine, and they need to have certain expectations laid out in the beginning. Finding our way through that path of, of challenging behaviors at times, it's, it's been really hard, but in the end, the kids trust us and they can open up and they can talk about you know when they're hurting and when they have certain memories or certain nightmares and we can better prepare them for their day at school or for you know how to deal with that in the future how to calm themselves down things like that I was actually going to ask then what's the most rewarding part of this there's like these moments I'm sure that sort of click and you're like wow that was that's why I did this in the first place I think um, like a couple, like one of them is, you know, you, when they came in to, to care and came in with us, uh, you see where their behavior was then and the challenges, the extreme challenges that we had. And then you fast forward, you know, nine, ten months later and just seeing the difference in their behavior, their interaction with each other, um, that makes you feel really good. Uh, the other thing is like little sporadic, you know, moments that you see, uh, for example, during the fall, we had we had them all in soccer. We you know we would go to their to, to their games, and I remember uh, one game towards the end of the season. She made her first goal, and just like the look in her face, just like look around, I got all the audience like looking for me, and then she saw me, and then you know just like raise your hands and like jump up and down, and I just wanted to like run out on the field and like pick her up, but then like I held back because I didn't want to like look like this crazy parent your child scores a goal and you go on the field it's like she won the world cup or something but yeah just like you know those little moments those little moments are a big reason why dessa wanted to be a foster parent in the first place i have actually always wanted to be a foster parent since i was in high school i volunteered at a crisis nursery and that's when i realized that there were these kids that didn't have homes and that needed you know temporary parents and that was my first experience and when i decided that Eventually, I would like to foster and possibly adopt kids. Um, but I think for Juan, it was a little bit different. Yeah. For me, growing up, you know, foster care or adoption was, you know, almost foreign. Um, sporadically, I'd hear the word uh, here and there growing up. But um, the way I was raised, it, it, the, the thought of fostering or adoption was never really considered or an option, just because to an extent it was foreign. And then once I met Dessa is when, you know, I started to learn more about it. And then the more conversations that we had, you know, the more I opened my mind to it. Although Juan was not familiar with foster care prior to meeting, he credits his Catholic faith for helping him to be open to the idea. One of the things that uh, that we've learned and was uh, doing things for others and caring about others. And um, I think that's been one of the uh, the things that has helped me as, as I've grown and helped shape me and you know, just to be considerate and be helping other people, I started to think, and, and you know, the conversation with Edessa was like, you know, there's kids out here with, uh, that are already in this, in this world that don't have parents. Um, you know, why not pr- 
provide parents to them. Juan also sees the potential for faith to play a big part in the lives of foster children because of the stability it can provide in their life. You know, growing up, I went through, I went to church. My parents took me to church, and then when I went up to college, I was still going to church on my own. And to this day, you know, now as an adult, uh, you know, with the family, I still go to church, and um, I still take. I started taking the kids uh, to church as well. So yeah, it's really. I think it's really helped shape my life in a positive way. Church and, and religion, I think, can really help these kids, especially when, with as complicated as their life is, having. Uh, you know, believe in God, I think it's a component that can really help them when, um, you know, they're faced with all these challenges and sometimes they don't know where to turn, where, you know, if you believe in God, it's like he's always there. So um, that's one of the things that, um, you know, why I push, you know, for them coming to church with me. Juan and Dessa, who is an atheist, made sure faith was an important part of their discussion about starting a family. And it just so happens that the kids they have now are also Catholic. When we were thinking about our forming our family, one of Juan's non-negotiables was that he needed to raise his kids Catholic because that was just part of his belief system and that's something that he needed in his life. And I accept that. I'm atheist, but if that's that important to him and if we can do it in kind of an open way where the kids are educated about all religions, then I can accept that because my non-negotiable was adopting kids. So then we decided that if we were to adopt kids, then they would need to be from a Catholic background. And for us, that's just the way that it's worked. And these kids, um, they're just foster kids, but it has been really great that they are from kind of a culture that we're very close to and that we're very comfortable with so that these kids feel really comfortable in our home and that we can embrace that part of their their identity and they don't feel like they've lost that because they have lost lots of parts of their identity just being in the system and being away from their biological family. Dessa is right. Children in foster care do lose a lot when they're in the system. But we should also make an important distinction. The term foster care is often used as a catch-all term for a number of possible out-of-home care settings that children could live in. These include relatives' homes, family foster homes, treatment foster homes, or group or residential care. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, approximately 45% of foster children were in non-relative foster family homes in 2015, while 30% were in relative foster family homes. So while not all foster children are placed with complete strangers, a high percentage are. The foster care system in general is under-resourced and overutilized. Emma from Good Shepherd said foster parents are always needed. Well, we have informational sessions once a month um, for people. If, you know, if you've thought about being a foster parent, if you just want to learn more about foster care, um, we host sessions um, throughout St. Louis and St. Louis County. And um, it's no pressure. You don't have to commit to anything. You don't have to sign up or anything just to learn kind of what about the licensing process is, um, what it's like to take in kids, um, learn more from, you know, people that have been there and, and know what it's like. If you don't think being a foster parent is right for you, there are other options. For example, a respite provider is someone who is licensed to watch foster kids for anywhere from a few hours to a few days 
Respite providers are important because they can give the foster parents a break from time to time. In addition, most foster care agencies like Good Shepherd hold fundraisers on a regular basis to support their mission. You could also consider joining a board of directors or a young professionals board for a foster care agency. For anyone considering being a foster parent, Dessa has some important advice. I think a lot of people come into foster care wanting to save kids. I don't think that's really what it's about. Help kids, yes. Be there for these kids that need somebody, yes. But nobody's going to be able to save them. These kids, most of them come from really hard places, and they just need unconditional love, and they need commitment. And it's hard. So I think knowing the realities of what foster care is and where these kids come from is really important before they get into it because I think a lot of people are really overwhelmed when they first get into it. We were. I mean, we absolutely were overwhelmed in the first couple months and really questioned, are we able to do this? Can we continue to do this? And we were able to keep going, and I'm really glad that we did, but I know a lot of people who couldn't, so I think it's important that the people are realistic when they come in and know that it is going to be hard. We came in knowing that this might possibly be the hardest thing we ever do in our lives and we might hate our life for a while, but we're going to do it because this is something that we feel is really important and we want to do something that benefits society, that benefits the community. We, we definitely feel like it takes a village to raise a child and it does. We have an amazing support system that we couldn't do this without. Numerous resources exist for foster parents, but one of the most important for Dessa and Juan has been their licensing worker from Good Shepherd, especially because they were initially licensed for traditional foster care placement, but then needed to get licensed for elevated needs. The assistance they have received from their licensing worker has been a huge help for Dessa and Juan as they have navigated this enormous change in their life. She knows the challenges that we've had. She's been doing this for years and years and she's just she has lots of resources she has lots of ideas to help us um and she's just supportive so she'll just listen to us and she'll just validate our feelings which is sometimes that's what we need yeah she's she's been just a tremendous help and one thing that i really appreciate that she has done is that um, we have, for example, we'll have uh, monthly meetings where the whole team meets and includes ch uh, children's division, you know, the foster parents. Um, and she has been to most of all of those uh, monthly meetings. And so she's really, she, she knows, you know, what's going on and she's involved. And I really appreciate that because um, it helps when, whenever issues come up or challenges come up, you know, with our kids. Like she's already, um, you know, she's aware of, kind of like the big picture and also on, on the lower level. So the, the level of involvement with her, you know, at low level and the high level has been really great and I think has helped us through this, uh, you know, through this journey that we've been through the last 10 months. Whether you're listening to this podcast during National Foster Care Month or some other time of the year, you can always help out. To find out about ways to get involved with Good Shepherd, whether as a foster parent or in one of the other services they provide, Visit goodshepherdstl.org or call 314-854-5700. We'll also provide a link in the podcast description. You're listening to the Catholic Gateway Podcast. Yeah. 
We hope that you are enjoying this episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast. This week and in future episodes, we will be presenting you with news that is taking place around the Archdiocese of St. Louis. So let's take a look at the news for the week of May 15th, 2017. The annual Catholic Communication Campaign is taking place the weekend of May 20th and 21st throughout the Archdiocese of St. Louis. This Archdiocesan Special Collection impacts directly the work of global and local communications efforts. Through generous contributions, the Archdiocese is able to make possible the Radio Mass in areas like St. Genevieve and the televised Mass for those who are homebound. The collection also supports improvements to technology and the Office of Communications and Planning's annual Communications Colloquium, which provides communications and marketing resources and instruction to schools, parishes, and agencies, assisting them as they spread the gospel message. Visit archstl.org ccc for more information about the collection and to hear a previous episode of the Catholic Gateway podcast exclusively on Catholic Communications. Make sure to register for the Taze Pilgrimage of Trust St. Louis taking place Memorial Day weekend, May 26th through 29th. You may have seen or heard Brother Emil on local media outlets recently talking about the upcoming events, which will make up the St. Louis Pilgrimage of Trust. The weekend will be devoted to prayer, conversation, friendship, and working together to heal divisions in our community. Please note that registration for most events will close on Wednesday, May 17th. Visit pilgrimageoftruststl.com for more. Holy Cross Academy in Shrewsbury was awarded a 2017 Gold Star Grant from Emerson Electric, totaling $15,000. With the Emerson Gold Star Grant funding, Holy Cross will be able to create system thinking boxes that will enable each campus of Holy Cross Academy to give students regular, rich experiences with technology and innovation. System thinking boxes are kits in large plastic containers that house everything needed for STEM-based activities while modeling the habits of system thinking. Each campus will have a system thinking box that will include a wide variety of materials and lab quest systems for each campus. Laura Clark, principal at Holy Cross Academy, and Jennifer Jung, a teacher at Holy Cross Academy, were presented the grant on Monday, May 8th. Nearly 90 St. Louis area Catholic organizations, agencies, schools, or affiliated ministries registered to participate in Give STL Day, the 24-hour online giving event organized by the St. Louis Community Foundation, which took place on Thursday, May 11th. According to the Foundation's website, 867 organizations had signed up, of which 87, or roughly 10%, are Catholic or affiliated with the Archdiocese of St. Louis and the Catholic Church directly or indirectly. Preliminary numbers indicate at least $100,000 of more than $2 million total dollars raised were for Catholic organizations. A listing of all Catholic organizations can be found at stlouisreview.com slash give-stl-day. On Friday, May 12th, John F. Kennedy Catholic High School welcomed alumni and friends to celebrate the school's 50-year legacy at a special event that began with mass followed by a social. The high school will close at the end of this month after 49 years of educating young people. Father Richard Wassman, president of Kennedy Catholic High School, spoke about the evening's events. I think it means the world. I mean, you can look around and see the fun they're having. You know, they're very prayerful at mass, joyful now. Uh, there's plenty of food, so that's always good for Catholic things. 
and uh, it's a bittersweet experience. The celebration on Friday night brought several generations of alumni together to visit the school, share memories, laugh, cry, hug, and wish each other well. Pictures, old uniforms, yearbooks, and other memorabilia were available for alumni and friends to take home to preserve their memories. Now let's look at the five quintessential stories picked by the staff of the St. Louis Review that you can share and discuss this week. You can find these stories at stlouisreview.com slash five things. That's the numeral five things. Number one, as was mentioned earlier in the news broadcast, the Taze Walk of Trust, which is part of the Pilgrimage of Trust, is happening on May 28th in St. Louis. Joe Kenny explains how the walk aims to build trust needed for a unified community. Number two, Dave Luking, reporter for the St. Louis Review, has a story up about the four men that were ordained as transitional deacons on May 6th at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis. Number three, the village of the Blue Rose is nurturing young adults with special needs. In this article, Jennifer Brinker takes a look at how Rose Gronmeyer is making an impact in the lives of the men and women in residence at the village. Number four, the Incarnate Word Academy soccer team is now 17-3-1 on the season thanks in part to their second-half play. Joe Kenny takes a look at the team that never surrenders. And finally, coming up in just a few moments, I will sit down with Dave Luking to hear about his story on the recovery following the flooding in our area and how the power of prayer and brotherhood are bringing out the best during the disaster. Also, you'll hear how Catholic Charities and St. Vincent de Paul are poised to help those impacted by the flooding in the St. Louis area and how you can help. These stories and more are all posted this week at stlouisreview.com slash five things. That's the numeral five things. That's a look at the news happening around the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Remember, for more news and coverage, visit archstl.org and stlouisreview.com. For up-to-the-minute news involving the Archdiocese, please follow the Archdiocese of St. Louis and the St. Louis Review on Twitter and Facebook. So the St. Louis area saw at least 10 inches of rain over the past several weeks, uh, late April and early May, which caused severe flooding in our area, especially near Valley Park, Fenton, along the Merrimack, uh, dramatic images of 141 and 44 being underwater and closed down were all across uh, all media here in the St. Louis area. And of course, this has impacted many Catholics and Catholic churches and uh, the Catholic Church through agencies like Catholic Charities are doing what they can to assist with these people, uh, many of them whom were affected 16 months ago by the flooding uh, around New Year's of 2015 and 2016. So with me today uh, is uh, Dave Luking with the St. Louis Review to uh, share a little bit about uh, his uh, trip down into this area, into the flood zone, to see some of the images and see uh, people cleaning up and and how it was going. So, Dave, thanks for coming in the Catholic Gateway Podcast Studio. No problem. It's my pleasure. So, uh, you went down um, to see some of the damage. Describe yeah. for us what what that was like. What you know, what did you see down there? And well, it, part of you know, it was it's sort of gut gut wrenching to see the actual damage because you realize these people went through this 15 months ago, and the the people are calling it or media is calling it uh, 200 year floods, but I think it's like a a 16-month flood on top of a 100-year flood. I mean, we thought it was over. When I covered it the last time, I thought, oh, this is a, like a once-in-a-lifetime coverage event. But now here we were uh, 15 months, 16 months later covering it again. And uh, the family in, in Pacific especially, um, they, they 
they had been through it before, and they, they managed with a Herculean effort of sandbagging and people from the parish helping out and friends and family and neighbors, and they, they managed to save a house by sandbagging around it. But, you know, of course, water still got in. The carpets were ruined. The bottom of the wall, drywall was ruined. And, you know, you can you could sniff around and, and, and smell like sandbags, wet sand. Is that, that like that beach smell, you know? And, uh, and they had industrial strength fans going. And, and you just feel sorry for those people to have to do this all over again. And what they need in Pacific and, and other places as well, you know, you got lots of volunteers to sandbag and help out in the emergency. But then, you know, and you might have some also who help, you know, gut houses and prepare for uh, their rehab. But they really need people who know what they're doing in terms of construction and rehab and, and that that kind of thing to maybe if they can work nights or give them a weekend, maybe, maybe give them an hour or two just to help them sort of rebuild because uh, this one family in Pacific, the the main house was, was okay. They, I mean, they kept pumps going and they sandbagged around it. And then the neighboring house, which was, was uh, the woman's uh, and man's uh, granddaughter and daughter's house, that took a big effort uh, to save and and they had just finished reconstructing stuff. And then there was a third house that they owned and they really didn't have a chance to do much to that house and they still were rehabbing it from the last time. So, you know, it, it's just so many families and, and even businesses have had to go through this. You know, they, you get rebuilt and then all of a sudden it happens, the whole thing goes over again. And, you know, you wonder, well, can would the government buy these people out? But the funny thing is, like, in Pacific, they had never really flooded, you know, extremely in that area. And the same in uh, uh, Kirkwood Tree Court Industrial Park. The industrial park has been there like 35 years, and the flood had never, flooding had never reached up to that, to the businesses. And it has the last few times. Yeah, it's really very dramatic. And you can read Dave's story in the St. Louis Review, the uh, edition dated May 15th through 21st, and the, the headlines, Faith Moves Mountains. Uh, so you can hear, uh, read some of his uh, description of, of what he saw. Now, you were saying earlier, uh, you went down there one day, I guess, before Valley Park was evacuated. It was kind of eerie just seeing people going about their daily lives. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because they closed the big flood walls, and you couldn't uh, access it from... Kirkwood and Marshall Road, which is the general uh, way into like the east side of, of Valley Park. So I, I drove down to the flood. There were a few, uh, you know, disaster tourists, you know, a couple people, maybe, a, you know, a handful taking pictures and, you know, the road going right into the water is kind of weird. But then I, I drove around. I had to take a roundabout way and get to get into Valley Park and people were Kids were playing in the street. People were barbecuing. This was on the Sunday. This was like two or three days before the crest. and Actually, it was two days before they had to evacuate. Right. And I remember last time when uh, Lisa Johnston and I were down there, uh, they were getting ready to, for people to evacuate. And, you know, the tension was palpable at that time because, you know, people had their cars packed. They had trucks. Uh, fire hot, firemen were going door to door to make sure people were gone. But then this time it was like you know, kind of business as usual, which was kind of kind of different for me because I think uh, I would want to get the heck out yeah, of there. But you know, want to take a chance. Yeah, maybe you know maybe a lot of people didn't know the gravity of the flood because 
interesting. I was talking to the, uh, these women in Pacific, and they, they're younger. They're 30 years old, millennials, as they call them. And uh, they said, well, we don't watch the news. We watch Netflix. <laughs> so they didn't know anything about the disaster, impending disaster, until they looked out their windows and saw people with U-Haul trucks and packing up and getting out. And what are you guys doing? Well, we're leaving. That's, that's an interesting coming. commentary, maybe a story for another day about yes. that. But no, well, maybe, too, there's just some disbelief that right. how could this happen the, again? Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and people considering, well, we went through this. We went through it 15 months ago. Anything now is not going to be as bad. Yeah, and there's an interesting quote uh, from uh, not your article, but Jennifer Brinker's article in the review right, right next to yours. Uh, talking about the charitable efforts, and, and a quote from uh, Catholic Charities President Teresa Rizika says, you know, since we're still assisting many yeah. families from the New Year flood of 2016, our, our case managers and disaster response team are, are very aware of the need. So, you know, Catholic Charities is still helping yeah. those people from 16 months ago, right. and now they're going to turn around and keep helping these people who have just been flooded out, many of them again. So Catholic Charities is, is they know what they're doing. I mean, they, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a well, two-edged sword, I guess. It's interesting because, you know, the TV uh, TV crews are all covering the disaster. And like Father Joe Kemp said in, in uh, Rika, most uh, holy, uh, most, most sacred heart, heart yeah. he said uh, the eerie sound was silence on 44 and the helicopters overhead with people taking pictures. But, we, you know, there's all, all this focus on the emergency, but then the actual work goes beyond on and on and on and on and somebody has to do that and that's where catholic charities comes in and also saint vincent de paul and and the parishes i know yeah. the the parish in uh uh pacific and keep saying every town because i've been to every one yeah. they're all they all kind of blend together something right yeah. uh pacific saint bridget of kildare the Pam Manuel of the parish office went door to door during the, the disaster. What kind of help do you need? Sandbagging, moving out, whatever. And now she's focused on getting help, you know, for people to do the the gutting and the rehab, and because that that kind of thing is still needed. That's yeah. needed after the fact. Yeah, and the media is not going to cover that. And you know, really, uh, those are kind of the quiet unsung heroes of this. Of the people. Uh, who go door to door and get people out of their houses or go and see what who needs help or yeah. or just the people who were out on the street sandbagging and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, That's the kind of thing that uh, it doesn't always get told or told as in-depth. Right, uh, yeah. And it was interesting. Father Joe Kemp was, he, had, he was one of the guys who went down there to sandbag. Uh, just, on, you know, he said he couldn't live with himself if he didn't help out. But he was down there, and the ironic thing is a picture, we got it from the Post-Dispatch, was taken in one of those helicopters overhead looking down, the, the same very thing that he described. So, yeah. um, That's you know, funny. yeah. Well, um, we want to keep uh, keep this in the in our minds, I guess, as we go forward because these people will be recovering and they still need help and need, will need ongoing help. Um, so, you know, make sure if you're listening to this podcast and, and want to help out, uh, you know, you can look up Catholic Charities. They have a special fund where they're collecting uh contributions to help the people who have been affected. You can also go to stlvolunteer.org for volunteer opportunities. Of course, Society of St. Vincent de Paul is accepting donations, checks, and they've, they've done some very neat fundraisers recently collecting food and, and non-perishable food items and things like that. So um, definitely lots of ways to help. You can check all that out. It's all listed in the St. Louis Review, uh, the, the paper version dated May 15th through 21st. It's all online at 
stlewisreview.com, stlewisreview.com, so you can find it there. And uh, make sure you get on and check out, um, check out these stories from, from Dave and Jennifer Brinker and Joe Kenny uh, about the disaster and, and what's going on right now. So and hopefully in the future we won't have too many of these stories to do. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, we yeah. would hope, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of a bigger conversation maybe the region needs to have, but uh, we'll leave that for other people. We'll, we'll talk about the good things going on here in St. Louis and what the church is doing to help out. So we're always, always ready to help no matter what, what happens. So. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's always, you know, Father Kemp was talking about organized efforts and unorganized efforts. Um, the unorganized efforts were just like people with trucks uh, helping their neighbor, maybe somebody they didn't know. That kind of stuff goes on. And I, I call it the Catholic way. It's sort of doing things under the radar without getting attention for it. Um, and that's kind of the way the Catholic, the Catholic Church does stuff. And another way to help out is the parishes. I know St. Bridget of Kildare, Sacred Heart in Valley Park, Most Sacred Heart in Eureka, uh, St. Paul in Fenton, and um, Mackie in the Conception, and St. David in Arnold. Uh, you know, th- they could always you know, check with them and uh, mm-hmm. see what kind of help is needed in terms of even volunteering yeah. or whatever. I'm sure Knights of Columbus councils will be doing things, mm-hmm. organizing volunteer opportunities, things like that. So yeah, definitely check with those parishes in the areas uh, to see what, what you can do if you're interested. And now would be the time, really, because they were discouraging people from going down when the flooding was happening. Yeah. They didn't want flood tourists to get in the way or yeah. get, be in danger. But now uh, they do need to clean up. They need to get all these sandbags put away. Uh, people need help with uh, you know reconstruction or, or yeah. some demolition and, and, and that kind of thing. So the definitely... Weird. If you feel a call to, to do some volunteering, reach out to all these uh, places and see what you can do. Yep, so. now the real work begins. Absolutely. All right. Well, Dave, thanks for coming in, and uh, thanks for the work you do to cover this and other stories for the St. Louis Review. And again, if you're interested in reading this story, check out stlouisreview.com, stlouisreview.com. And the May 15th through 21st paper edition is where Dave's article and others on the flooding are uh, are printed. So thanks for listening to the Catholic Gateway Podcast. This is Gabe Jones. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast. We always welcome story tips and ideas for the podcast. Just send them to communications at archstl.org. That's communications at archstl.org. Make sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with what's going on here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Archdiocese of St. Louis. We're on Twitter, at ArchSTL is our handle there, at ArchSTL. And we're on Instagram, at CatholicSTL. And you should follow the St. Louis Review there on Facebook. Also, Twitter and Instagram under the handle, at St. Louis Review. That's S.T. Lewis Review. The Catholic Gateway Podcast is a production of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I'm your host, Gabe Jones. We hope you'll join us again next time here in the Gateway to the West, the Rome of the West, Catholic St. Louis.